Now let's pause for a message from our advertiser. It's time you know about Tick2. Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring path-breaking research in the role of Tick2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the Tick2 pathway by visiting www.tick2.com, spelled www.tyk2.com. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, I'm Jim Del Rosso from Las Vegas, Nevada, a dermatologist here and a clinical researcher, but we're not here to talk about me. I'm here to introduce a good friend and someone I work very closely with at, at many of the meetings and someone well known to us in dermatology that is very active in education, clinical research and just involved in a lot of very positive things. That's Dr. April Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is Professor of Dermatology and Associate Dean at the University of Southern California. So April, it's always good to contact you. Thanks for being here today. Such a great pleasure seeing you, Jim. So I know you've been involved with the Derms and Conditions episodes before, so this will be a, a new and exciting episode. So some questions I have now that we're in a different uh, place and time uh, with the whole discussion about Janus kinase pathway, JAK-STAT pathway, Janus kinase inhibitors. And there are a lot of blankets thrown over this entire area when we say JAK inhibitors as if everything is the same. But there are some distinctions, even though there's a lot of crossover uh, because these drugs may, may affect more than one enzyme. There are some specific details that I think are important to point out. So I'd like to start by asking you, when you hear JAK inhibitors and you're talking to somebody else, a dermatologist or a resident or whatever, that knows maybe less about them and is looking to have some light shed on the subject, how do you initiate that discussion? What do you, what do you think it's important for them to know getting into the into that subject? Yes, Jim, I would completely agree with you that it's a complex subject and it can be a little bit overwhelming for uh, our residents and our colleagues uh, who may be uh, their first time getting familiar with the subject. I think one of the first things uh, that I talk about is uh, that there are four members of the Jack family, Jack Kinase family, and they are Jack 1, 2, 3, and Tick 2. And when we think about these four members, they all work in pairs. And for example, JAK1 can pair with JAK2, and it can pair with JAK3 and TIC2. So JAK1 is uh, friendly, like it can pair with any of the other JAKs. And JAK2, uh, for example, uh, is the only one that pairs with itself also. Uh, so you get the JAK, JAK, JAK2, JAK2 pairing. And then, uh, and then when we're thinking about these pairing, the important part is that depending on the different pairing, they can then, uh, elaborate different intracellular signals. So when we're thinking about JAK inhibitors, uh, it really it matters uh, where they are inhibiting, whether they're inhibiting JAK1, and if they do inhibit JAK1, then it can inhibit the different pairings that JAK1 is involved with, or for example, it, if it inhibits JAK3, then that affects the different pairings that JAK3 is involved with. So when we're speaking of JAK inhibitors, it's important to know which JAK they're inhibiting 
and where on the that Janus kinase uh, molecule they are inhibiting. Um, so when we're thinking about selectivity uh, of the inhibitor, and that's where it will uh, come into play. So for example, JAK1 pairing is uh, JAK1 inhibition, for example, is very important for inhibiting some of the uh, immune-specific um, uh, pathways. So in atopic dermatitis, when we have, for example, upadacitinib or abrocitinib, a lot of its therapeutic effects is mediated through inhibiting JAK1, for example. And then when we look at psoriasis, for example, we know TIC2 can be uh, quite involved with regards to the IL-23 pathway, uh, which is one of the key pathways for psoriasis. So inhibiting TIC2 can be quite therapeutic and beneficial for our psoriasis patients. So when I think about it, for example, let's just take genus kinase 1 or JAK1 as an example. So we're thinking about a particular disease state and certain cytokines that are overexpressed that we're trying to inhibit. So we know that, oh, if we inhibit JAK1, it's going to block the effects at the receptor where, let's say, interleukin-4 or interleukin-13 or interleukin-31 would interact with. So by blocking JAK1, we lessen those effects, and that's going to help a disease like atopic dermatitis, for example. And there are other cytokines that might inhibit. But also, on the other side of it, the potential downside is when you're inhibiting that uh, JAK1, it may also be having effects on some other receptors that are involved with, let's say, hematopoiesis or lipid metabolism. And so those are not things you want to target, but those are some effects that you might be getting, which is why we get into, depending on which JAK inhibitor you're active against, and some drugs affect more than one, why we're looking at some of the monitoring to look at some of those unwanted pathways is another is one way of saying it. So how do you keep all of that together? Because it is complicated. Yes, uh, I think uh, when we're looking at inhibition, we do get cross-reactivity, for example, uh, that that even though our intended target, for example, is JAK1, we may get a little bit JAK2 inhibition as well. And I think the way that I think about is uh, if there is potential cross-reactivity with JAK2, and you know those are the the JAK2 JAK2 pairing, as we know, for example, is responsible for the signaling of erythropoietin, uh, GMCSF, uh, leptin, prolactin, and so forth. So a lot of it actually tends to go back to the clinical data. And when we see, for example, some perturbations uh, in our CBCs, for example, uh, from the phase three trials, then we know for certain medications, for example, our JAK inhibitors that have been approved, uh, that we do want to monitor that, especially in the very beginning for our patients. So right. checking the CBCs, um, as you know, checking lipids and CMPs is part of what we need to do. So you mentioned some of those uh, chemical signals like erythropoietin, red blood cells, the granulocytes, obviously white blood cells, and it can go on and on and on. Uh, so that's that's why I think it gets confusing. Now <laughs> with TIC2, a TIC2 has been looked at in terms of maybe having some more specific effects, but not so as much crossover with some of the broad uh, effects that are not necessarily on the immunologic side, but influencing lipids or hematopoiesis. So, you know, how, how distinct is that separation? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Jim.、Uh, I think tick two,、uh, when it can be inhibited specifically,、um, it can actually have、uh, a very specific effect on the immune pathway that that we are hoping to target.、Um, so. Why is it different and、uh, distinct? Is that when we're looking at the pathways that Tick2 is involved in, for example, the Tick2 and the Jack1 pairing, that particular pairing is responsible for what we call the type one interferon, so、uh, interferon alpha and interferon beta. And these interferons are、uh, involved in the activation of the myeloid dendritic cells, which is one of the first. Steps in psoriasis pathogenesis, and then when we take a look at separately Tick2 and Jack2 pairing, that particular pairing is responsible for the signal transduction of IL-23 and IL-12, which we know are very important for the activation and survival of Th17 and Th1 cells, respectively. So when we think about、uh, the Tick2 involvement, it is involved in really the key points. In terms of psoriasis pathogenesis, first at the activation of the myeloid dendritic cells, and two at the activation and survival of our T helper cell population, and specifically Th17 and、uh, Th1.、Uh, but getting back to the question of why is inhibition of Tick2 maybe more specific, it also has to do where we inhibit the molecule.、Um, when we are inhibiting it, for example. At the regulatory domain, you get a more specific inhibition because that particular domain is very distinct across the members of the Jack family. Whereas, for example, our field have also looked at Tick2 inhibition at the catalytic domain, and in the catalytic domain, we know that particular portion of the molecule is more conserved or shared across the other. Members of the family, and therefore may actually、uh, have a bit more cross reactivity with with the other members, and and we've seen that for drugs in development. You can get some crossover where you didn't want it, you know, in in some in some situations. So as I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking that if I could make you know shrink myself like Honey or Shrunk the Kids, you know that movie years ago. <laughs> for the, Um, you know, and actually going inside April Armstrong's head, sort of like in a sci-fi movie, and watching all these gears <laughs> moving as you're talking, and and just saying, you know, tr- how you ke- how keeping it all together. It takes a while, a lot of reading, and a lot of、uh, a lot of time to really get to that point. It doesn't happen overnight, right? It takes a while to to put all it, of that it together. It definitely takes a while.、Right? Yes, it definitely takes a while to get familiar with this material. So even someone like yourself, who I consider to be pretty bright, and I think all of dermatology knows that, it doesn't happen overnight. You, you still have to work at it. So that's encouraging to <laughs> others, right? I, I think I think、uh, for all all of our really brilliant dermatology colleagues, I think if you got into derm, you know you are quite special. I, I think、uh, for all of us, you know,、uh, it's it's been a while since we really looked at these molecular pathways, and and I have to say, yes, Jim, absolutely takes a while to to get more familiar with this material. Certainly doesn't happen overnight. So now let's move from discussing all this, you know, basic science and laboratory work and and some clinical work. 
Now it's April Armstrong in the clinic, right? And you have a resident or two or with you, and you go into the room and you, you have a patient, let's say now that we have drugs available for atopic dermatitis, and the patient has been on other, other treatments, a variety of other treatments, and still looking for more still not satisfied, still having difficulty with flares and itching. And now you're thinking about, you know, starting uh, Janus kinase 1 inhibitor, and maybe it has activity against some other enzyme. What information are you thinking about making sure you get from that patient uh, before you initiate treatment? What background information do you definitely want to know? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So there are, there are a number of things that I want to know. First, just their general um, comorbidities. Are they uh, a person that's overall relatively healthy or do they have chronic kidney disease, for example, which I would really then stay away, for example, from the JAK inhibitors. And also, do they have uh, liver conditions? Um, do they have any history of hematologic abnormalities? Uh, we, if they do, we need to be very cautious and, and, you know, really intensify our monitoring, uh, in those particular patients. Uh, also, uh, for patients who in, within the hematologic abnormalities, especially platelet levels need to be watched closely. Um, if they are on an antiplatelet medication, for example, certain antiplatelet medications, uh, we need to be especially, uh, careful of. Uh, in addition to that, I think patients who may have a history of recurrent, for example, herpes uh, infections, uh, we also need to be careful because as we know, uh, a lot of our JAK inhibitors, uh, they are associated with increased uh, rates of herpes zoster uh, infections. So even though we can treat them in a particular patient who really have a recurrent history, uh, we need to be just especially uh, be mindful. I think the elderly patients is uh, also extremely important because I think they are just a, a bit more fragile potentially and have more comorbidities. Um, the ones that really worry me are patients uh, with a history of thromboembolic disease, for example, um, and uh, those with uh, multiple cardiovascular risk factors that can put them at risk for uh, heart attacks or or strokes. So those are the, those are the particular populations that when I examine their comorbidities, uh, that really flag me in terms of, you know, whether JAK inhibitors would, would be the right choice in the first place. Or how you may want to monitor. So April, this is all great information. Just stay where you are because we're going to get a word from our sponsor and I'll be back to you shortly. Now let's pause for a message from our advertiser. It's time you know about Tick2. Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring path-breaking research in the role of TIC2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the TIC2 pathway by visiting www.tic2.com, spelled www.tyk2.com. So my good friend, Dr. Armstrong, right, right now, most of the experience that we have with the drugs that we're actively using are Janus Kinase 1, Janus Kinase 2 inhibitors, and these recommendations are based on the background information that you discussed, and also results we're seeing from clinical trials. We don't we don't necessarily have that at this point with TIC2 inhibition because we don't currently have any therapies that are in the marketplace on TIC2 inhibition. So the recommendations may be the same or they may be different, right, in terms of what what's recommended, what might be recommended in approved labeling if we ever have that situation, or also from the literature. But 
thinking about that patient, because you mentioned the thromboembolic uh, risks, uh, DVT, pulmonary embolism, obviously, if there's a personal history or a strong family history, that's a red flag. But let's take a patient, you know, the 32-year-old female, uh, she smokes, and she's also on oral contraceptives, right? And she's not had any problem with oral contraceptives. She does not want to get pregnant, um, and she wants to stay on those but hasn't had any DVTs and there's none in her family history or thromboembolic episodes. Are you still concerned because of the number of risk factors now? You have a smoker, you you have someone that's on oral contraceptives, maybe a remote family history of somebody had a heart attack years ago, but nothing that comes through real strong. What about in that situation? Are you still considering a Janus kinase inhibitor and what would you discuss with the patient? Yeah, Jim, that, that's a great uh, scenario and, and not uncommonly that, that we face that. Gosh, you know, uh, how many of us have family member history of, of uh, uh, heart attacks or, or cardiac disease, right? I think in that particular patient, um, I would say among the risk factors that you talked about, I would be most concerned about the smoking history and then, then uh, that she is currently smoking and, and my ability uh, by myself to potentially have her stop smoking, which we know can be quite difficult. So I think my conversation with her would, uh, would involve, you know, smoking does increase your risk of, um, clotting disorders. And, uh, and for example, JAK inhibitors is something we can think about, uh, in the future. Uh, but unless, you know, we are able to get modify smoking as a significant risk factor for thromboembolic disease, uh, I probably would in that particular case uh, look for other therapies, uh, biologic therapies for this particular patient. Now, uh, history uh, having OCPs um, is, is something that we definitely want to watch out for, but there are other options like progestin-only options for our patients. Now, we know progestin-only um, OCPs can also increase the risk of acne, for example. Uh, but hopefully, you know, we, we, we can control that. So I would say in that particular patient that you described, smoking history is probably something that, uh, that concerns me the most. And I probably may not actually start a JAK inhibitor in that particular patient due to that. Uh, but I would say it, it, it is an option if we can really help modify uh, that those uh, health behaviors. So one of the other things that I've given a, a fair amount of thought to that I'd love to get your impressions on is that, you know, one of the dis main discussions with these Janus kinase inhibitors, whether it be the topical ruxolitinib or the orals like we have with uh, upadacitinib and abracitinib, is the quick activity against the itching and they work fast and, and even the eczematous dermatitis comes under control fairly quickly. But that's not necessarily managing the chronicity of the disease. That's having a quick onset because of the nature of eczematous dermatitis. It can come on quickly. The cytokines are released. The itching comes on quickly. So we're really lessening what's associated with an acute flare. And if they stay on the treatment, you can obviously modify you know, control the flares and get the disease under control long term. But when we're utilizing Janus kinase inhibitors for other types of diseases, psoriasis being a, an inflammatory disease that 
the response rate might be different. But when you're even looking at autoimmune disease like vitiligo or alopecia areata, we shouldn't be thinking we're going to start them today and the vitiligo is going to be gone in a week or the, the, you know, the hair is going to grow back. You know, the type of disease you're treating is going to influence what kind of effect you're going to see clinically. you have any thoughts on that? I know I might have blindsided you with that because you and I have not discussed that, but I know you're smart enough to easily handle If I could handle that question, you, you can certainly handle that question. And, and Jim, I, I will say absolutely. That's a very, you know, it's a highly clinically relevant question. And as we have seen with the vitiligo data, for example, and with alopecia areata data, uh, we are looking at different endpoints that take weeks and sometimes months uh, to see clinically meaningful changes. Um, so absolutely, depending on the disease that we're treating and the endpoint that we are selecting, and, and we see different endpoints being selected for, for different trials because uh, of the, um, uh, the time it takes uh, to, for the JAK uh, inhibitor to affect that particular, uh, that particular disease process. And I think it's very exciting that we have now a JAK inhibitor that's approved uh, just recently for alopecia areata. Um, and I think the big question really for all of us as a field is, you know, whether it's vitiligo, alopecia areata, for, for these diseases uh, where, uh, where we can potentially achieve a clinically desired effect, but how long? How long does one needs to be on these JAK inhibitors and how do we taper it to a level that's a minimal level that one need and still maintaining that desired effect. And I, I don't think our field at this point uh, have sufficiently long-term uh, long uh, data to, to inform us of, of that particular question. Well, that leads me to, you know, final uh, area of discussion with you that, that you that I'm, I'm glad you touched on. I mean, I remember in the beginning when you were talking to people about starting them on dupilumab, and they hadn't been on it before. They've been, they've been miserable. They've had, you know, difficult disease, itching. You know, we, we know the burden of that that condition. And but you're having the initial discussion with them, and the same can apply with psoriasis too. And they're thinking about, well, how long am I going to need to be on this? What is it going to do? What's it going to do to my immune system? They haven't had the experience of feeling better from the medicine. They only know this disease, which they live with almost every day. They may get better at times, but it's a real chronic problem for them. But then they decide to get on it. And now they're on it for a while. And this can certainly happen with Janus kinase inhibitors, not only with monoclonal antibodies. And so now it's six months, eight months, nine months down the line. They're doing a lot better and they're feeling a lot better. Uh, many of them, even though you might have some questions or they might have some questions about what's going to happen long term, they're doing so well. That's been an experience they've never had. And they don't want to stop. Right, so when we think about with with Janus kinase inhibitors and some of the things that we're monitoring for, if they get if they get out of the woods early on over the early months, uh, do we have enough information to know that they're likely not going to run into problems? Some of the problems we discussed, if they're on the medication a year and suddenly get a DVT or suddenly have, so, I guess it can happen. But do we know enough about that with the chronic use of those drugs? Yeah, so the, um, the experience we have uh, currently are mostly with patients who have been enrolled in clinical trials from the very beginning. 
And even with that, I think it is a question that uh, that we you know are, are constantly uh, gathering data for. I think the tricky part is teasing out um, es- essentially our population's baseline rate for getting DVT or getting um, heart attacks apart from uh, that of potential additional contributions from the medications. Uh, one thing I do think that uh, uh, that we have observed in the clinical trials is that for those who have had pretty stable, for example, laboratory parameters and who have um, uh, uh, no significantly known risk factors when you start them, for example, they tend to be the ones who uh, have currently, as far as we know, the, the, the rates that are similar to the general population. So that's, that's reassuring. So a lot of it right now for on the burden on us is to make sure that the patient selection in the beginning is helpful, it is correct. And then, uh, and then I think uh, in terms of the really long-term data, I think we will be able to get that information as we accumulate more experience as a field and getting that from our registry uh, data. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is to remember that patients can change over time. They're, they're, physiology, their health can change over time, and you just have to constantly be updating that information. April, as always, I always get a lot out of talking to you, so I really appreciate your time today. That was fantastic. Thank you, Jim. It's always a pleasure speaking with you as well, and thank you also for always being such an engaging and just entertaining host. I I love listening to these podcasts And I look forward to hopefully another conversation in the future. Oh, it will happen. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us. Now let's pause for a message from our advertiser. It's time you know about Tick2. Bristol-Myers Squibb is exploring path-breaking research in the role of Tick2 in psoriasis. Start exploring the Tick2 pathway by visiting www.tick2.com, spelled www.tyk2.com.